You are listening to the official Sasta podcast with me, your host, Harry Stebbings, at H Stebbings with two Bs on Snapchat. And we're back for another week to deep dive into all things SAS. Thanks to the main man here at Sasta, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. Always a must-read tweet or two, to be sure, from Jason. But to the show today, and do you know we've never had a chief revenue officer on the show? Well, being episode number 132, I thought now was the time for that to change. And who better to join us today than Kurt Billifer? Kurt is the CRO at WePay, the most complete payment solution for platforms. To date, they've raised close to $75 million in VC funding from some of the most prominent names in the business, including the likes of Max Levchin, Dave McClure, and August Capital, just to name a few. As for Kurt himself, prior to WePay, he's had experience both in startups and large corporations, with his founding of Pilot Software, which he sold to SAP in 2007. He then spent a further seven years at SAP, holding titles such as Global Vice President of Sales and Director of Strategic Accounts. I do also want to say a big thank you to Jason Lemkin and Bill Clarico for the intro to Kurt today, without which this episode would not have been possible. But enough from my dulcet English tones, so I'm delighted to hand the mic over to Kurt Billifer, Chief Revenue Officer at WePay. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Kurt, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show today. A big hand to Bill Clarico for the intro, but thank you so much for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. Appreciate the opportunity. Absolutely, but I'd love to get started with a little bit about you and how you made your way into the world of SaaS. Let's start with that. Yeah, so it's been a long journey. I I built a a software company that I sold to SAP and spent a long time at SAP, I guess like eight or nine years. And the last part of my SAP journey, SAP was transforming from an on-premise company to the world's largest SaaS provider. So acquisitions like Ariba and SuccessFactors and Concur and and all those sort of things were happening. And, And so I got to witness the transformation, not just internally. So how are we setting up operational procedures and processes, but how it was impacting the customers, the buying journey, our messaging, our value prop. And so my last gig or assignment at SAP, I had the chance to go run APJ for one of their business units, Asia Pacific Japan, and spent two and a half years in Singapore where there wasn't a huge legacy footprint of perpetual on-premise software. And because of their geographic dispersion and uh, the way that they buy products, SaaS was just a huge fit. So when I came back to the States, um, I got some advice from a VC pal of mine who said, you should really work for a Valley company. And I said, oh, I am. I'm working for SAP. You know, they got a great office there on Hillview. And he just laughed and he said, no, like a real VC-backed Valley company. Um, and so that's what started my journey into kind of looking at what opportunities were out there. And, and obviously, SaaS and, and the whole buying journey has changed. So the opportunity to participate in that and try to bring my experience from, from SAP and even before that was a great opportunity. And WePay is unlike any other SaaS company that I've seen. So we're not a traditional SaaS company where we have monthly reoccurring revenue based on selling seats. We're actually a transactional-based SaaS provider. So we provide something that's called integrated payments. And so when we sell a deal, money doesn't instantly start flowing into the company, right? We actually have two selling processes. One is first we sell to our customer, which we call a partner. And then we actually have to work with them to sell the value of payments to their customers. So we talk about the customer's customer a lot in the journey, which has forced me to kind of reevaluate a lot of the traditional SaaS metrics and how do we measure success and productivity and, and lifetime value and time to money and a bunch of other unique metrics. I do want to ask, so you said there about the buying journey changing considerably. What were the big changes that you saw when making the transitions? Well, it, it used to be 
that regardless of the department that was going to utilize a solution, that the tech teams or whether it was the CIO or the CTO played a really big role in selecting the vendors. And so analyst firms like Gardner and Forrester and others were just a key part of that process. So a lot of what we had to do was, was really capture the mind share and alleviate the fear, right? So, you know, I remember growing up, most of the, the listeners may not, but people used to say like, you never got fired for buying IBM. Uh, mm-hmm. That's probably not so much the case anymore. So a big part of the selling process at SAP was talking about vendor viability, that we had these long and uh, consistent roadmaps of success of delivering and that we were the safe choice. And in the world of SaaS, it's very, very different, right? You're selling primarily to, depending on your solution, but oftentimes you're selling to business users that aren't as sophisticated, aren't necessarily worrying about infrastructure and security and those sort of things. So the sales cycle is different. It's definitely distributed. So it's a buying committee, right? So you have to sell through IT, but you have to really convince the business users of the value in the impact and why they need to move from oftentimes a manual process to an automated solution. And so that part of it just means how we approach the customer and how you establish relationships. It's no longer like just knowing who are the executives and IT and the procurement teams at these big companies. It's establishing a relationship, a trusted advisor status throughout the entire buying process, which means that starts before you even talk to your prospect. How does that start then? What's kind of first step? I'm, I'm too intrigued not to ask that. So I guess if you look at my LinkedIn profile, you'd kind of see like, I, I truly believe this and, and I live this. So I consume a lot of information. And, and one of my more impressionable bosses when I was at SAP was a guy named Steve Lucas. Steve's now the CEO of Marketo. And Steve used to talk about always be relevant. And his example was that he subscribed to 50 or 60 different magazines and, and a variety of different topics. So no matter who he was meeting with, he could talk about something that was relevant to them and establish that relationship. So to quickly transform ourselves from just traditional salespeople, which is how we're seen, right? We're seen as like used car salesmen. It's like, oh my gosh, this is a sales guy. Like, how do I get out of his way or go hide in a meeting room to why do they want to engage us? And that every touch point that we're moving and progressing and that we're adding value, that that's really how we start differentiating. So for me, like LinkedIn and social tools are one of the ways that I do that. But even just taking the time to really understand and research a customer's problem, a pain, the competitive landscape. A lot of the preparation that I think doesn't happen in a lot of organizations today, sales is sales, right? You know, people are still buying from people. So you still have to make that investment in time and energy to know who you're selling to and what their particular pain is. And if you don't establish that credibility, and if you can't base your value on something that's relevant to them, then they're they're not going to buy. Can I ask final question before we dive into all things metrics? Is that a scalable tactic when approaching the SMB market where there's potentially 20,000 people in the pipeline, not the kind of 10 in the ABM pipeline? So I think there is. I mean, I I wrote a post and did a a web seminar with a company called Mattermark, and they focus on building what they call ideal customer profiles. And so I think in any repeatable sales process, there's personas. And the personas play different roles in the sales process. So sometimes, you know, your executive sponsor, that persona is typically the person that owns the business unit. Sometimes they're the decision maker, sometimes they're the economic buyer, sometimes they're your coach and sponsor. But you can build out four or five personas and have generalized sort of talk tracks and pain points and value prop that then you can localize with some basic research. I mean, the amazing thing is we can find out so much more about our prospects and our customers today than we ever could before. 
but it, you have to have discipline. You have to have focus and sales is a process, right? It's not about sending out 10,000 emails. I mean, I constantly am bombarded by emails where I read them and I have no idea what it is they're selling or the value of the solution. And I think I'm just one of, again, 10,000 people that day that made it to their lucky list. Yeah. So I think you have to take the time to curate it. And I do think it's scalable because you don't need 10,000 emails. You need a thousand highly curated or maybe a hundred highly curated, highly targeted emails. No, I completely agree. And I love it also when you, they get the name wrong. It's like, it's a, ba- <laughs> it's a bad start. Uh, it's only, yeah, only going to get worse. But I wanted to, you said about metrics there and, and a can theme of the industry that's only further exploded with time. Uh, and so I get quite confused. So talk to me about all the metrics. What metric can we use in terms of measuring what will determine whether to put more fuel on the fire or to slam the brakes? Is there a simplification of this kind of plethora of metrics? Everybody talks about customer acquisition costs and lifetime value and churn and all those things are really important. But I guess in my world, and part of it is because of my background, uh, because I have been in data analytics and, and business intelligence for 20 years, that, that I separate what I consider metrics, which are really activity-based, to looking at like key performance indicators, which I see as outcomes. Right. So, And you need both. But I think we confuse in the industry both those different things. And the reality what's the, what's is... What's an example, if you don't mind me asking? So a metric might be how many emails were sent or how many calls were made. But a KPI, a key performance indicator, is a lagging indicator. And they typically don't change. You're not looking at it every day. You're looking at it like once a quarter. And so for me, like my Uber metric, my, my KPI that I look at and I talk about with my team is something that I call the magic number. So, so let me take you through the calculation. I'll talk about why it's important to me. So the calculation is you take your most recent quarter and you deduct the previous quarter's revenue. So I'm looking at the most recent quarter minus the previous quarter's revenue. And the delta between that is basically my revenue growth. And I annualize that number. So since it's on a quarterly basis, I just multiply by four. And in theory, that's the annual additional revenue I generated in that quarter. So quarter over quarter revenue growth. And then I divide that by my sales and marketing expense for that most recent quarter. And assuming that number is one, which means I'm, I'm generating more, you know, one times the revenue that I'm spending on expenses, it's a good thing. Now, obviously, you want that ratio to be higher, right? So for every dollar I spend in sales and marketing, I'd love to see a return on investment of three or four or five dollars. But part of it is it depends on the business. And so the reason why I like that number is churn is obviously deducted from that. I see incremental revenue from new customers coming in. But since, since my role is as the chief revenue officer, right? And, and I look at both our install base and the new business that's happening. That gives me a holistic view of w- what's really going on in the business and are we successfully growing the business. The other thing that I see when, when there's such a focus on customer acquisition costs is there are a bunch of costs that are actually shared across the install base in the new business. So say like a marketing case study, when you get a existing customer to do a case study, it benefits the install base because it may help you cross sell, upsell, and it certainly benefits you know your new revenue as well. And so I find that CAC either gets significantly handicapped because people just disregard a bunch of costs that could or should be in there. And then when when people start looking at lifetime value, I think the other trigger specifically at WePay is when we close a deal, because we don't start generating revenue on that first day, right? So we actually measure with something we call time to money, which is a better metric for us. I'm all about ensuring that we are facilitating what I call that second sales process. So the first sales process, selling to the customer, the second sales process, 
processes, getting that adoption from their customers. And so looking at this magic number, it gives me a real holistic view of, of are we seeing that happen or not. You mentioned the ratio of sales and marketing expense to revenue there. Is there a kind of a benchmark for a reasonable ratio in your mind? Yeah, I mean, ideally, I think you want to be generating an ROI of two times the amount of revenue as what you're spending on marketing at least in the high growth stage, you know, so in the market we're in an integrated payments, you know, it's certainly, I don't want to say it's a knife fight or anything, but it, but it's highly competitive. And, and part of the reason why is people in, you know, software companies, SaaS companies are just starting to realize that they might actually be more like platforms than traditional SaaS companies. And so as they try to make themselves extensible and own more of the customer experience and the customer journey, they're looking for payments because a lot of these SaaS companies create commerce but they don't enable commerce to be completed. And so what I see is right now, like we are investing. And so for me, looking at a ratio of two times is, I think is healthy. I think at some point in time, that number's got to go higher. But, you know, we're achieving significant growth. And part of what we're doing is evangelizing and educating a market. And for those that have done that before, like created a category or market, there's a real significant investment that needs to happen so people understand the hows and the whys and the value and the impact of the business. Can I ask a very meta question? question of you. Just in terms of, as the CRO, how do you kind of uh, evaluate capital allocation? And how do you look to hire for the future with today's numbers and then kind of actualize that in your head and in the figures in front of you? Yeah, so that's a, that's a great question. Uh, there's a couple of things. One is, you know, certainly we've built out our own forecasting methodology that looks for, at everything from how many deals we need to close and the anticipated revenue those deals will generate. But there's some metrics in between that, that I spend more time on. And the big one for me is time to money. So, if I can actually shorten the period from when we close them to when they reach their joint agreeable goals, right, those milestones, then that helps me really accelerate their revenue. And so when I'm looking at expenditures, I'm looking at them in two categories. And one is, can I grow my addressable market? One. And two is, can I accelerate the time to money? Um, we look at standard hurdle rates, right? So we are looking for anywhere from like two to three X, you know, return on investment for what that looks like. But I think the other thing is, you know, we pay is we're almost a nine-year-old company in August will be nine. Um, we're still relatively new in, in the journey. And in this space, the one thing that we've seen is that companies of all size are now starting to wake up to the value of payments. And so because the the market as we defined it has changed, has morphed, right? So we're working with massive, massive companies that we historically haven't worked with before, their needs are different. And so we're constantly revisiting how do we make these capital expenditure decisions and what are the metrics of success. And, and like I said, for me, like time to money is, is probably the single biggest one because I'm, I'm also worried about overextending ourselves and reducing the quality, right? Because in my chief revenue officer role, I own all of marketing and sales, but I also own the customer success organization. And it isn't about, this isn't a land grab where I need to have, you know, 80% of the market. I'd rather have 40 or 50% of the market, assuming that those are the right customers really deriving value. And, and we're not seeing significant churn in the business. I'm very, very interested there. You said about selling to the bigger players that you maybe didn't sell to before. I'm intrigued. How does the buying journey change and transition when selling to them? And how does also the time to money become
become effective when selling to much larger enterprise players? Yeah, so everything just gets bigger. I mean, so the duration from when we close to when we achieve those milestones certainly gets longer, right? It becomes a more complicated sales process. Certainly, for me, it's it's much more reminiscent of my days at SAP, a real complex sales process. But the personas, for the most part, like stay the same. The value prop stays the same. It's just navigating the process. And there's typically a lot more people to educate and align as you go through this journey. And I think like that's one of the big things when you're selling to larger organizations. And, and so what's interesting is, so I've been with WePay for, for almost two and a half years. When I joined, I'd say the average size company we were selling to was maybe like 20 employees or less. And so we could get away with talking with one or two people in the organization. In these deals, which we call large enterprise deals, we're talking with organizations that have thousands of employees. So we use a tool now called Data Hug. And I'll give a little plug for the product because I think it's awesome that it basically sniffs our emails and tells us, like, are our deals multi-threaded or not? And how often are we talking to a wide variety of people that we classify ours? You know, are they economic buyers? Are they decision makers? So they're part of the buying process so that we can really get a score and an understanding of in these mega deals, are we touching enough people and are we touching them frequently enough? And I think like that's the one big thing is the classic sales process hasn't changed, right? You still need a stakeholder map. You still need to you know, identify the red, yellow, green and neutralize and understand who your coach and sponsor is. And I think for whatever reason in the world of SaaS today, we're like, okay, like with a phone call and an email, we can get these deals closed. But when you sell to complex organizations in, in a highly competitive marketplace, you still have to be prepared with a disciplined sales pro- approach. No, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Before we do dive into a quick fire though, and staying on the time to money, I had a uh, Scott friend at Bain Capital on the show recently, and he said payback periods by far the most important metric. I'm intrigued to hear how you think about this, and specifically within its relation to time to money. So I read a lot about how different people consider and talk about payback periods. And again, because WePay is a little unique in the fact that we're a transactional SaaS, the reality is we could sign a deal, we could have an amazing integration, and everybody could be really, really happy. But the go-to-market plan, the how they plan on getting engaged and utilization of the product could just not be the right one. You know, it could fall down. And so one of the things that we've done is we believe we need to own our dependencies. So we spend, even though we work with them on the technical integration and the pricing and their whole strategy around payments, we now spend a lot of time with them to say, okay, what is the go-to-market plan for taking payments to your end customer? And I think this is applicable in the SaaS world. Like, so I'll, I'll just pick on like CRM, right? So we're a salesforce.com user. Can't talk about SaaS without ever talking about salesforce.com, right? So of course. So, you know, we use Salesforce um, and I've used it for years and, and I'm a big fan. But what's interesting is, you know, we bought the licenses, but no one ever came in and said, how are we going to get everybody in the company to use it? Or what are the different use cases? And let's support those different use cases. And I think one of the things now Salesforce is doing really well. So maybe this isn't a challenge for them. But but I do think there is an opportunity to focus on increasing penetration and helping your customers do that. Historically, in my world, like selling on premise software, it was like you do the deal and implementation of someone else's problem. In the SaaS world as a salesperson, I, I think you really have to care about that. So we have our salespeople partner with customer success, um, our, our what we call partner success inside our organization, to work on those go-to-market plans to help them facilitate it. And our marketing team actually has a playbook where we've written sample emails and we have sample web content for, for their website and all sorts of things that in some cases our customers just take, put their brand and their colors on 
on it and send it out to their end customers. And so that's really facilitated and accelerated the time to money. When we look at like a, a payback period, the interesting thing about WePay and the fact that we're doing integrated payments is we're an open API. So in most cases, churn is relatively low. Since once they do an API integration, assuming that we, we, we don't completely fuck up and that we're honest and genuine and deliver on what we what our commitments are, they will stay with us until we give them a reason to leave. And so I don't necessarily look at things in 12 and 18 month windows. Now, having said that, we build predictive models that show based on historic performance for companies similar to the ones we close, how should they perform? And that way we provide benchmarks of who's overachieving or underachieving. So we know where we need to focus our time and energy. But I don't look at it as if someone hasn't achieved their revenue goals in 12 to 18 months, that, that they're necessarily a failure or they're a scenario where we don't want to invest. In those cases where someone is underachieving, we actually oftentimes really triage those and put more resources on them to help them overcome and realize their business benefit. Mm-hmm. Because they have goals for why they bought our solution in the first place. And we also have to make sure we're helping them achieve those goals. Absolutely. The embodiment of uh, customer success. But I'd love to dive into a quick fire round. We call the 60 second Sasta, and this one is Kurt's 60 second Sasta. So are you ready to dive in? I am. So what mistake do you see most in the world of SaaS? That people don't want to be transparent. You know, I think as salespeople, we grew up thinking that we could walk the halls and people would clear them for us and we were the big swinging dicks. And I think that has evolved. It needs to evolve if it hasn't in your organization. But that definitely is, is a mistake I see. So if we shouldn't look for big swinging dicks in sales, what <laughs> should one look for in their first VP of sales? Yeah, so, so I think someone who's going to get in the foxhole. So I always describe my leadership style as a lead from the side. So I never ask anybody to do anything I'm unwilling to do myself. And I don't think that makes me special or unique, but I do think that is a requirement for a first VP of sales. You have to be willing to do the dirty work, gain the credibility, run those initial sales cycles. And every time you onboard your next AE or inside salesperson, you need to be sitting with them and educating them and taking them through the process because that's what's required to scale in the early days. And when I say the early days, until you get to 20 or 30 reps, you need to be at that level of detail. What's the worst piece of SaaS advice you commonly hear being given out in the industry? Instantly build your sales force. I mean, I can't tell you how many times when people see that you had a good quarter or two where they're like, okay, now double the size of the sales team. And I, I just, I don't think that's the right approach. I think a slow roll and having metrics and making sure that people are productive is the most important way to succeed. What's your favorite SaaS reading material? Rainy day, hot chocolate. What do you get excited by in the world of SaaS content? You know, so I read a bunch of different things. I, I like Startup Co. I like First Round. Certainly tons of the content on Saster, Fast Company, TechCrunch, like you name it, I, I read it. Do you know, I know I, like, I, I, I stalked your Twitter profile and it was an unbelievable reading journey for me. So thank you for that, by the way. Yeah, of course. Uh, so listen, I think for me, what I like to hear is where people have struggled and how they've addressed those struggles. Because the reality is I live in the Valley and the Valley is just full of hype. And what I love to hear is, is the war stories and how people overcame them. So I have to do some searching to find that, that content. What do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning of your journey? Wow, that's a great question. I guess patience really is a virtue. And we can all kind of chuckle. I'm a very impatient person. I'm more patient now that I have two kids. But I do think we all, particularly in the sales world, have very, very audacious goals. And sometimes 
sometimes we just need to take a deep breath and give it a few days for everybody else to catch up. Yeah, no, I agree. Patience has never been a problem for me. Not. <laughs> <laughs> but I do want to finish today, and we're moving away from the quick fire. So A, brilliantly done in getting all those in in 60 seconds or less. But I want to finish with a statement that you said to me before on transparency and culture. And you said, gone are the days of the lone wolf. So it's too tempting. What do you mean by this? So if you read the challenger sale, they talk about different personas of salespeople. Uh, and the classic sales persona is the lone wolf. And that is the salesperson that doesn't really tell anybody what's going on with their deal, doesn't provide details, and then just magically at the end of the quarter typically delivers. And I saw that a lot. In my early days at SAP, SAP rewarded the Uber deal. And when I say Uber deal, like think eight, nine figure deals, massive, massive deals. And so the culture was, you didn't tell anybody about it. You didn't include a lot of people in the sales process, but I think that's changed now. And I saw that change at SAP, right? I saw Bill McDermott, who was running North America when I first joined, talk about never losing a loan. And that, you know, in your organization, it doesn't matter how big or how small, there are countless resources and people that want to help salespeople close deals and to be part of that win. Salespeople love the juice, right? They love the energy, the end of quarter, right? You know, today's June 28th. I know how many days they got left at the end of the quarter and, you know, things are pumping. But what's interesting is the rest of the organization would love to have a little bit of that juice as well. And so inclusion and transparency, everybody wins together, everybody loses together. And when people lose together, they learn a lot from that process. And I think, you know, SaaS companies or even just, you know, large, larger non-SaaS companies have a lot to learn from that never lose a loan mindset. Can I ask, is it technological innovation that's driven that transparency with uh, the rise of cloud, uh, producing collaborative technology, and really allowing for the organization to be democratic? So I, I think technology has a lot to do with that. I also think there's just a different set of expectations now. I think companies really want to real-time riff, innovate, pivot, however you want to call it. They want to respond to what customers are saying. And technology is certainly an enabler in that. But I also think like almost every process in the business, things have been demystified. People have a better understanding of what needs to happen in the sales process. I'm not saying they're great salespeople. You know, there's certainly people people that I work with that, that want to know everything, that I cringe if I would take them in front of a customer. But it doesn't mean that they're not valuable in the sales process and they can't contribute. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think particularly as sales leaders, so you know, we go from, from an individual contributor, you have to share. But as the sales leader, you have to provide transparency across your organization. Otherwise, what's going to end up happening is you, know, you, you may miss your number and there's no one else to blame but yourself. But when you share that responsibility and you provide transparency, it's everybody's problem. And I want to finish with like a really cheery topic being conflict within the team uh naturally something lovely to end on uh, but naturally it's normally the sales and marketing teams that face the conflict a recent guest of mine said that it was actually customer success and product now i'm intrigued if we throw them all into the bundle what have been your lessons around cohesifying teams collaboration between them and how to instill really strong channels of communication or potential weaknesses whereby uh, faults can crack and happen you know i see issues between product and sales and sales and marketing. Everybody kind of has you know, the, the organization they rub with. Within my span of control, everybody has shared metrics in the comp plan. So SDRs carry the same, they have a SQL goal, but they also have the same goal as the salespeople for how many deals they have to close. The salespeople have how many deals they have to close in revenue, but they also have something for a launch metric, which our field technology sales team cares about. The field technology sales team has a launch metric, a close one deal metric, 
metric and a net revenue metric. And so the nice thing is, is everybody has these shared metrics. So when they get pissed off or there's a problem, they have to come together to solve those issues. Now there's inherent conflict between product and sales, primarily because every time sales comes up with a deal, there's always some new feature or some function that, that a, a prospect wants. And we would love product and engineering to deliver that within 24 hours. And that's just not a realistic goal. Um, so I think there's some, some healthy conflict there. And we work to address that just by ruthlessly prioritizing. We actually have this concept of every quarter I get four chips and those four chips means even if product says no, I can, I can place a chip on the table and my, my ask will go to the top of the list. And so I, I work from this scarcity model. So the first week it's great. Everybody's like, okay, we're going to put these four things through. But if we do, we get no other ask for the quarter. Mm-hmm. That's typically how we manage the process. But I also think it's a really, really strong leadership team. So I spent a lot of time with our head of product and engineering, articulating what our needs are and why, and him explaining what our constraints are and what are the movable and immovable objects in our roadmap. But the last thing is I'll give a plug for, we created a team at WePay that we call field technology sales. And that's a combination of basically our pre-sales and our post-sales team. So think of these, this is the voice of the field, but they're technology focused individuals. And the person that I have running that team is, can go really, really deep in the technology. And thankfully he can speak business speak as well and, and communicate what the challenges are. And he is a great go between to help broker and explain what our constraints are and why. And, and I think that's really, really important is that we've empowered and allowed him to frontline those relationships. Kurt, I was told by Bill, it would be an absolutely fantastic episode. Uh, you've absolutely blown me away. The only trouble is I'd like to do a part two. Uh, so I hope you're okay to spend more time with my dulcet British accent, but uh, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. And I can't thank you enough. Hey, thank you very much. Harry. I really appreciate it. My word, so many takeaways from that fantastic interview with Kurt. And if you'd like to see more from us, then you can follow Kurt on Twitter at Billifer. You can follow me on Snapchat at HDebbings with two Bs. It would be fantastic to see you there. Or you can follow the main man, Jason Lemkin, at JasonLK on Twitter. Always a must-read tweet or two from Jason. As always, we so appreciate all your support and cannot wait to bring you next week's episode.